Hello, my friends, and welcome again to the Bible Lab, the podcast where we explore major themes from every book of the Bible in order to see how each page points us to Jesus, who he is, and what he's done. I'm your host, Andy Wood. Thank you for joining me. Friends, this is going to be the last episode in our examination of the book of Exodus, and our goal for today is going to be to examine some points of application that we can draw from the book of Exodus. Now, let's talk about application. As we've mentioned before, God's goal in this is to transform us. God has saved us by his grace, and he's going to transform us by his grace in the process that we call sanctification to make us more like Jesus. So when we read scripture, when we study the Bible, the goal is change. And we've talked about how change happens slowly, change happens step by step. There's steps forward, there's steps back. Sometimes it feels like we're not going anywhere, but this is sanctification. Now, how does this happen? And so I want you to think on three levels. The first level, when you read the Bible, is that you are looking for, let's call it a timeless principle. Now, since God is going to be the star of every chapter of the Bible, uh, the easiest way to think about that is, what does each chapter teach you about God? What does each theme teach you about God? And from that, you're drawing a timeless principle. So example might be something like, God is holy. That is a timeless principle. That's something that's true about God at all places and all times. And that is just a fundamental fact of the universe, that God is holy. The second level is to think in terms of a universal implication. Now, an implication is what comes on the other side of a therefore, right? You've got a fact, and then there's a therefore, and then something comes from that fact, and that's an implication. A universal implication is an implication that would apply to all people. So let's go back again to the idea of God is holy. That's the fact. That's the timeless principle. The implication of God's holiness, God himself gives us, you therefore should be holy because I am holy. So God is holy, therefore I should be holy. So those are the first two levels. The third level is individual application. And that we're not going to get into on this podcast. Simply because each one of us has a different situation. We have different points of application. And I trust the Holy Spirit will reveal to each one of us how we should apply the timeless principle, and the universal implication. But we're going to stay on those first two levels. And so as we did in our episode wrapping up the book of Genesis, we're going to just identify very quickly some lessons that God has given us in the book of Exodus. I'm not going to, for the sake of time, read the scriptures, though I will try and give you the scripture references so you can go back and look at these yourself. And I trust that the Holy Spirit will reveal to you, reveal to me, what he would have us by his grace begin to change, something to start, something to stop. Uh, Remember, friends, to go to your brothers and sisters in Christ. If you feel like the Lord is laying something on you to change about your life, then you are not meant to do that by yourself. You are meant to go to your brothers and sisters and say, hey, can you pray for me? I want to grow in this area or I need to stop doing this. And this is how change happens. It happens little by little and it happens in community. So without any further ado, Let's jump into our first lesson from the book of Exodus, and that is God raises up a deliverer for his people. We see in Exodus 2, verses 10 and 23 through 25, how the people are being oppressed by the Egyptians, and God raises up a deliverer for them named Moses. And he does this, it says, because he remembers his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God uses the man Moses to deliver his people But this deliverance that God brings about through Moses is just a picture of the deliverance that God will one day bring about through Jesus, who is the ultimate and final deliverer. Second lesson we can learn is that God confirms his word with miraculous signs. 
In Exodus 4, 1 through 5, when Moses has been commissioned to go and tell Pharaoh, let my people go, Moses is worried. Not only will Pharaoh likely not believe him, but even the people will not believe him. And so God gives Moses and Aaron the ability to do these miraculous signs to validate the word that they bring. I believe that we see this same pattern happening in the New Testament, where the apostles were given the ability to perform miracles to confirm the word. And my short answer on, well, what about us today? Do we have the ability to perform these miracles? And my short answer, friends, is I don't know, but probably. <laughs> I, I know that's not exactly the most uh, definitive answer of all time. Uh, but what I would say is that I believe that when we see the gospel going to new places, when we see the gospel reaching into unreached people groups, I do tend to believe the reports that we get back of healings and speaking in tongues and miracles, because I think when God sends the gospel, when he sends his word into hostile territory, people who've never heard it, he sends it accompanied by miraculous signs. So the simple answer for why don't we see more miraculous signs, for example, in America, is because this isn't pioneer territory anymore. There are churches, people have heard the gospel, people do not believe for lack of evidence, but simply for a lack of will to believe the Lord. But I do think God confirms his words with miraculous signs. Number three, God's people should expect hatred and opposition from the world. We see this hatred and opposition from Pharaoh. And the story of Pharaoh murdering the Israelite children and then oppressing and enslaving them, this is not just human sinfulness. This is the manifestation of the warfare that God promised Satan and Adam and Eve would exist between people who are spiritual offspring of the woman and spiritual offspring of the devil. We should expect hatred and opposition from the world. As Jesus says in John 16, I have said these things to you that in me, you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. If we're living faithful lives for Jesus, people are going to hate and oppress us, but we are to take heart because we are proclaiming the one who has overcome the world. Fourth, God hears his people when they cry out to him and he remembers his promises. Now, this verbiage of remembering is not meant to imply that somehow God forgets and it, oh, we have to bring it to his mind, but rather we are encouraged to pray, to pound on the doors of heaven, to cry out to God, and God will move in his perfect timing. And it looks like from our perspective, it's like, oh, finally, God has remembered me, but God has never forgotten us, friends. If God has not yet moved to, del to deliver you, then God is waiting for a better time, the perfect time. So our job is not to determine when the right time is. Our job is to cry out and ask the Lord to deliver us. Fifth, God judges those who oppress his people. In Exodus chapter 12, when God sends the angel of his wrath throughout the land of Egypt and he strikes down the firstborn in every house, this is a horrifying scene, but it's also poetic justice because the Egyptians, not just Pharaoh, but the Egyptians participated in the murder of the Israelite children. And so they slaughtered children and their own children are perishing. God will bring evil down on the heads of evil perpetrators. But we also remember that God shows mercy. And that even if an Egyptian who had participated in the murder of Israelite children, if they had believed the word of the Lord and painted the blood of the lamb, they would have been spared. God is merciful. Sixth, God sometimes hardens the hearts of sinners as a judgment. As we talked about in our episode, looking at how God fights the war for glory for his name, that he says to Moses before Moses steps foot in the promised land, that he is going to harden Pharaoh's heart. 
And we said that this is shocking language. But Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 9, verses 14 through 23, that God is the potter and we are the clay. And that God wants to display all of his character. And so he chooses to harden some to display his wrath and his power and his justice. And he chooses to graciously grant salvation to others to display his mercy and his love and his compassion. And we don't get to complain and we don't get to question. God understands that this is a natural instinct in us. But we must remember he is the creator. He is the potter. We are the creation. We are the clay. God will, does, has, however you want to phrase it, he hardens the hearts of sinners as a judgment. There is a mystery here. And we will never fully understand with our human minds. We'll never fully comprehend how this works out. But we're not told to work it out. We're told to respond in repentance. And so if you feel the Lord calling you to repent, you don't have to ask yourself, well, am I of the elect? Has God hardened my heart? Repent. And you don't have to worry. You don't have to wonder if when you feel like maybe I should share the gospel, this person like, well, I don't know, maybe God's already hardened their heart. That's not your job. Your job, my job is to share the gospel and let God do what he will with our words. Seventh, we need the blood of Christ to escape God's judgment. The Israelites were guilty of sin. They had been worshiping Egyptian gods. They were doubting and grumbling and they were in many ways, just as guilty and just as sinful as the Egyptians. And the Israelites needed the blood of the Passover lamb. But the Passover lamb on that first night in Egypt and all of the Passover lambs for the many thousands of years that passed between the Passover and the birth of Christ, all of those were simply pictures, images, previews, coming attractions of the ultimate Passover lamb, who is Jesus. Eighth, God supernaturally provides for his people. As we read the Exodus story and the people leave Egypt and they go out into the wilderness, we see God provide water and bread from heaven. And we learn in the New Testament that these were meant to be symbols of how God provides for our ultimate need in Jesus. We see bread from heaven in Exodus 16, water from the rock in Exodus 17, and then in John 6, 31 through 35, and 1 Corinthians 10, 3 through 4, these stories are interpreted for us. Jesus says in John 6, 32, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. In 1 Corinthians 10, 3 through 4, it says that those who left Egypt, they ate the same spiritual food. They drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. So just a question is, are we finding our satisfaction, our deepest longing fulfilled in Jesus? Or do we stop in with Jesus whenever we need a snack, but we go to the world to have our true meal? And if that is the case, we are wrong, and we must repent and go to Christ. Ninth, we cannot approach the infinitely holy God without a mediator and a substitute. All of these elaborate rituals that we see enacted in the book of Exodus, we see the tabernacle, we see the sacrifices and the priesthood, and they all seem so very, very strange to us. And praise God, we no longer need an earthly human mediator to go to God for us. And we'd certainly no longer need to sacrifice an animal. But these symbols were expressing a deep truth of the universe. You and I do not have the right to walk up to the throne of God and expect anything other than death. But because our substitute has died, who is Jesus, 
And he has risen and now serves as our mediator, our great high priest who lives to intercede for us. You and I are not only allowed, we are invited to approach the infinitely holy God. May we never lose sight of what a privilege that this is. And may we never stop approaching the throne of grace. Tenth, God graciously provides instruction regarding how to conduct ourselves in a relationship, not only to him, as we see in the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods before me. And we see these first four commandments relating to how we are to relate to God, but also with others. We are redeemed people and God has not left us in the dark. He has taught us in his word. We see in the book of Exodus, this clear distillation of God's character and desires expressed in law. And this is the track that our life is to run on. We're not obeying the law to make God love us, but God loves us so that we are changed and empowered to obey the law. We don't each get to come up with our own definition of what love for neighbor and love for God looks like. We read his word and say, that's what I'm going to do. Number 11, since God is merciful and just, we should be merciful and just to display his character. As we see in the Ten Commandments, we have all of these laws regarding how the Israelites were to treat the poor, how they were to treat criminals, how they were to treat people trapped in debt, uh, immigrants, widows, orphans. And all of these relationships are being marked by justice and mercy because our God is just and merciful. Our job, Israel's job, is to display the character of God to a watching world. And there are few better ways to do that than to love those who can do nothing for you. Twelfth, God tells us how to approach him, and we may not and must not create our own way. Exodus 25, 8 and 9, God says, Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. It is an infinitely gracious act that God has prepared a way and said, you may approach me in this way. And what a profoundly arrogant and ungrateful act it is for us to say, oh, can I just come my own way? What do I have to, I mean, it's all the way over. There. No, friends, for the Israelites, it was the tabernacle. It was the priest. It was the sacrifice for us. It's Jesus. We go to God through Jesus and we may not, we cannot create our own way. Thirteenth, the human heart is prone to making and worshiping idols. As we see in Exodus 32, the glory of God is still on top of Mount Sinai. The smoke and the fire and the lightning and the thunder and the ground is rumbling. And Moses is up there feverishly writing down the commandments that God gives. And at the bottom of the mountain, the people, nah, I don't want to wait anymore. Let's make more idols and let's worship those instead. And we find this to be shocking. And well, we should, but we should also see it as fairly autobiographical. Because you and I, like those people who left Egypt, we have also enjoyed a great redemption from our Lord, and we have also made idols and worshipped instead of worship the living God. We are prone to idolatry, and so we must be on guard, and we need brothers and sisters who see us drifting and will run after us and say, hey, you are headed in a bad direction, and we repent of our idolatry. Fourteenth. God condescends to live in a tent because his people live in tents. God's people are in tents. He's in a tent. God is the king of the universe and he certainly fills all of existence. So he's not limited to this tent, but he is condescending to live with his people. And as amazing as this is, this is a mere preview of what it's going to look like 1400 years later when Jesus comes to dwell among his people. 
As it says in John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt, that English word dwelt, is John taking the Greek word for tabernacle, the tent where God lived in Exodus, and turning it into a verb. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And we see his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And then Hebrews 2.14 says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus himself, partook of the same things. He took on flesh and blood that through death he might destroy the one who had the power of death, that is the devil. Jesus took on flesh to not only dwell amongst us, but to die for us and to redeem his people. So friends, there is a feast laid out for us in Exodus, but the best part of the feast is how it points us to Jesus, who he is and what he's done. He is our Passover lamb. He is our tabernacle and he is our great high priest and he has given us himself. He has given us his laws so that we can enjoy his blessing and be a blessing to others. So friends, Lord willing, the next time we come together, we will begin an examination of the book of Leviticus. But for now, take up and read. God bless. 